Well, good morning, everyone. You guys can hear me okay? All right. I'm going to begin by reading just a few verses from 1 Samuel 17. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me to 1 Samuel 17. It's a lengthy chapter. I'm only going to read a few verses here at the beginning. But it would be good for you to follow along with, with as I highlight certain verses. So 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to begin in verse 45, and I'm just going to read three verses, 45, 46, and 47. As you turn there, I'll mention that our church, Grace Baptist Chapel, is thankful for you all. Uh, Our church sends you her greetings. We're thankful for you. In fact, when we have visitors often in our church, if, if our church isn't quite a fit for them, I will often tell them, uh, of you guys and, and send them your way. I really am enjoyed the service so far. The liturgy and the music is just really wonderful. And as I sat up here, or sat down there rather, and just, just listened to, I mean, maybe it's the, the, I think it's you guys singing. I mean, it's a beautiful building for one, but the singing here, I, I can hear it and I appreciate it. And it ministers to me, and I, I don't, I'm not exaggerating, I think it ministers to others around you as you sing and as you recall the gospel. And we'll speak about that in just a minute. So hear now the word of the living God. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you. And take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this, your word. Though this story may be familiar to most of us, I pray that it will still have its intended effect, that it will sharpen us, that it will quicken us. I pray for those who are depressed. I pray for those who are struggling in their faith, that you will use this word to strengthen them. I pray for those who are proud, that you will use this word of yours to humble them before you. And I pray for those who do not yet know Christ as Savior, that you will use this word, even from the Old Testament, to draw them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and as God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What's David and Goliath? I would venture to say that everyone in this room has heard this, so why preach about this? Well, there's a Puritan, Thomas Brooks. He says, example is the most powerful rhetoric. And there's something quintessential about this story. There's a reason that this story is told again and again. Why revisit it? Well, I think it's, it's good um, to, to look back at these triumphs of the people of God and to recall them and to cling to them and to, to grab hold of them and say, yes, this is, this is our faith. It's a triumphant faith. We are on the other side of the cross. Christ has come, he's died, and he's rose from the dead. And our faith in him secures us, but not all of God's people saw as clearly as we do. So the people in 1 Samuel, they did not see what we see. They did not see Jesus yet come. But they were given a promise early on. So I want to give you a bit of background before I dive in. You'll recall Adam and Eve in the garden, they sin. And there's a curse placed upon them, but there was a curse placed also on Satan, you'll recall. Satan's head would one day be crushed by the seed of the woman. This is Genesis 3.15. Quote, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So Christ's heel It's the first chapters of the Bible. Christ's heel will be bruised, but he will defeat the serpent and bring new life to the man and the woman despite their sin. And this event early on in the Bible 
It conveys the ultimate aim and scope of the scriptures. And as part of this plan, God sets apart a people for himself. This is Israel. And it is from this people that will come the one who defeats Satan. So God sets them apart that he may bless the nations and show that the true God is not a God made with hands. And God shows them that he cares for them by setting up rules that steer them away from idols. And he provides this people, Israel, with a promised land. As the chosen people of God begin entering in the promised land, other nations, they already knew who they were. They had heard rumblings of who this people of Israel was. They heard about, specifically, the exodus. They heard about the fact that the God of Israel defeated Pharaoh. He sent plague after plague after plague, and then eventually he separates the Red Sea and the people of Israel cross, and then God makes the waters come down again, and when they do come down again, they crush Pharaoh's army. They heard that the God of Israel is unlike any other God, and yet, as Israel was entering into the promised land, they still prayed to their own false God. They didn't even give them up. There were many such gods. They still attacked God's people. And the Philistines, for our purposes this morning, were one of these peoples. They were an enemy of Israel. And they were a thorn in Israel's side during their conquest of the promised land. The Israelites were instructed by God to wipe out the Philistines. But Israel disobeyed. He did not, they did not kill them all. You, you can look back in Judges. Remember the story of Gideon. Gideon is fighting against the Philistines. So for years and years, the Philistines are attacking Israel. And throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we see a battle, a series of battles between Israel and the Philistines. Let me highlight one. Most notably, at one point early on in 1 Samuel, as they were, as the Philistines and Israelites are fighting, the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant. You may remember this. And at the time, the Ark symbolized the presence of God among the Israelites, and strict rules surrounded the way that the Israelites had to handle the Ark of God. Well, the Philistines steal it, and it's utterly foolish, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant of God into their territory, and they bring it into a temple and place it next to a large statue of their god, Dagon. So imagine then for a moment what is going on. The symbol of the presence of Yahweh right next to a symbol of the presence of Dagon, the Philistines' god. So these two gods, if you will, are sitting next to one another. And in the morning, the Philistines wake up, and what do they find? Dagon has fallen down. He's face down before the Ark of the Covenant of God. And it's, it's as if Dagon is falling down before God, worshiping him, acknowledging him. This is the true God. Dagon could not stand in the presence of God. Even though it's a statue, something happened in the night. The Spirit of God came and said, bow down. And Dagon does. So what would you do if you witnessed something like that? What do the Philistines do? They just picked Dagon right back up and they just stood it right back up. Maybe it was a fluke. And they leave. Well, it was no fluke. The second night comes, and Dagon is yet again face down before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. But this time, Dagon's head has come off, and his arms have come off. They are afraid, the Philistines, because this has happened a second time. But do they begin worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel? They don't. And then God, to press the point even further, strikes the Philistines in this city with a plague. Many of them break out with tumors. 
And they begin to get the picture. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant of the God of Israel out of our land. And they take the Ark of the Covenant and they send it back to Israel. So God gets glory over the God of the Philistines. This is recorded, 1 Samuel 5, if you'd like to read it later. And I think this is a necessary precursor to understanding 1 Samuel 17. God is glorified, not so much because of the people of Israel and their obedience, but because God is the greatest of all the gods of this particular land. And he will make certain that he gets glory over every other God. There is no God but Yahweh. And that's the point of 1 Samuel, all the way through, beginning to end, including 1 Samuel 17. It's at the heart of this book, and I'd say it's at the heart of the Old Testament, even the New Testament. And again, what sort of fear and confidence should this event instill in the Israelites? What sort of confidence would this instill in you? Think of the wonderful confidence that you, believer, should have. You're here, you've, you've read the word, you've heard the word, you've seen Christ in the scriptures, you've accepted him as Lord and Savior and God, and week by week, I love that you do this, you are a remembering people. That's what the scriptures tell us to do. When you take the bread and when you take the wine, you are remembering that Christ has come, that he died, that he rose again. And the people of Israel... They've seen this before. Throughout the book of Judges, if you go back, Deuteronomy, Numbers, they've seen it again and again and again. God does the miraculous for his people. They should be confident. They should be faithful. But they're not. The Israelites do not learn their lesson. And here we are several chapters later, 1 Samuel 17, and it's a familiar scene. So let's then look at this chapter. I won't cover every verse, but we are going to see a faithless people. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Try to follow some of the specific verses I'll highlight. I'm going to cover this in three headings and then move on to some brief application. The first heading is this. The Antichrist harasses the people of God. The Antichrist harasses the people of God. So beginning in 1 Samuel 17, verse 2. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So the Philistines and Israelites are at war. Again, battle lines are drawn. The two army camps are on opposite sides of the valley. And you would think at this point that the Philistines would have had enough. They've they've already suffered a plague. And this is like the great enemy of the church, too, I think. I think there's a lesson here. There are enemies of the church. There are enemies of the people of God. And you would think that after a time, certain people would just give up. You see this in missionary contexts, that the church is thriving and they try to squash it and then the church grows nonetheless. And you would think at that point that people would just give up and say, just, just leave those Christians alone. But their church is going to grow. The Philistines, they don't give up. They keep coming after the Israelites. They are tenacious. This particular battle is a duel, verse 4. A champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath. And Goliath proposes a duel and says that any of the Israelites, if any of them, are able to defeat him, then the Philistines would become their slaves. And the counter is that if he beats the representative from the Israelites, then, then the Israelites would become slaves of Goliath and the Philistines. And not one Israelite shows courage. Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Every man is afraid 
and greatly dismayed. Everyone is a coward. Not a few, everyone. And this is a shameful lack of faith on their part. We already saw what happened in 1 Samuel 5. God has routinely shown that he will fight on behalf of his people. Yet each man is a coward. And this continues for 40 days. It's not like, well, I'm not feeling really my best. I got a cold. At 40 days. You don't have an excuse for 40 days. Goliath comes out into the valley. He challenges Israel. No one accepts, and then he comes back the next day, next day and he's just taunting them, just taunting them. And not only does Goliath taunt the people, he curses Israelites' God. It's verse 43. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. He say, my gods are better than your gods. Goliath is an antichrist. He's a type of antichrist. This is what the antichrist does. 1 John 2, 22. Who is a liar? He who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is the antichrist who denies the father and denies the son. So the antichrist is the one who looks at, at God and says, you're not the real God. That's what the antichrist does. And that's what Goliath is doing. The Antichrist aims to thwart the purposes of God. God is good, he's loving, and the Antichrist seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. So for his motives alone, we could say that Goliath is a type of Antichrist. He wants to destroy God's people. He wants to thwart God's purposes. But there's even more clues that kind of bring us into this Antichrist idea. Goliath is like the Antichrist in that he is a representative of all that's evil. He wants to destroy God's people, yes. But he harasses Israel specifically. He is the leader and head of the army that opposes God. But there's even more clues. Let's look at the way Goliath appears, beginning in verse 4. Goliath's height, six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. So he's, he's a big dude, right? But more than that, I think, remember when the Israelites were entering into the promised land? You remember why they were cowards in the first place? It's because there were giants in the land. Only Joshua and Caleb had faith. Only Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can take them on. But the Israelites, when they were going into the promised land, they saw giants. There were a race of literal, actual giants in the land. And so I think this, this image of Goliath being a giant harkens us back there. Let's not go in there. That's where the giants are. That's why they didn't do it the first time. Goliath is over nine foot tall. And there is an allusion here to that race of giants. But more than that, look at the word bronze. Interestingly, I think there's a play on words here. Bronze, the Hebrew word for bronze and the Hebrew word for serpent are remarkably similar. They're basically one letter off. So there's wordplay. So when you hear the word bronze, it sounds like serpent. And this, this is not original to me. A lot of scholars have pointed this out, a number of them. So look at how many times the word bronze is used we're supposed to get this idea. This, isn't just a, this is, just isn't just a big guy who's good at fighting. There's something else going on. His helmet, so his head, is covered with bronze. His armor on his torso, his coat, is covered in bronze. And then even his legs, the armor on his legs, is covered in bronze. And his weapon, a javelin, is covered in bronze. 
bronze. So the wordplay is that this isn't just a bronze giant. This is a serpent-like giant. But it gets even more interesting. Notice that his armor was a coat of mail. That is, this is scale armor. So he's a bronzy, scale-like figure. And the picture that you're supposed to get is that this is a giant dragon-like figure, full of scales, looking like a serpent, looking like a dragon. And this isn't a stretch. Again, this is not original to me. And this is the way Satan is described in Revelation. There are 12 or more references, by the way, to a dragon in Revelation to refer to Satan. But there's one last way we can see a parallel between Goliath and the Antichrist. Consider that it was for 40 days that Goliath taunted the people of Israel in the wilderness. Recall that Satan harassed Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness. He's taunting Jesus. Satan was in the wilderness. He's tempting Jesus in the wilderness. He's trying to get Jesus to bow down and serve him. It's true, I think, that Goliath is a, is a historical figure. I think all of us would agree to that. But there's more going on here. Though he was a real man, a Philistine, we cannot miss that this is meant to conjure up the fact that he's an antichrist. So with these details in mind, we can see this event teaches truths far beyond what's relevant strictly in 1 Samuel 17. This is a picture of that cosmic battle between good and evil. And so far, no one in Israel is willing to resist this Antichrist figure. No one. Who is willing? A good shepherd is coming. So this is our second heading. The good shepherd is zealous for the glory of God. The good shepherd is zealous for the glory of God. David was not a part of the army of Israel. We can read some of this background in verses 12 to 20 or so. He is a shepherd and he comes to the battlefield only because his father tells him to go and to take his brothers some food. And as David comes, he sees Goliath come out and challenge the people. And right away, David is incited by this challenge while the rest were afraid. Note verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So we're getting repetition now. They are dreadfully afraid. To be dreadfully afraid is to stop in your tracks. As if you saw something that you've never quite seen before. Was that a ghost? What was that? Dreadfully afraid. You stop. You wonder what you actually saw. Was that real? It's important here to note that Goliath defies God and God's people. As one theologian has said, God is bound up with Israel. So to defy Israel is to defy the God of Israel. You can't think of one, really, in this sense without the other. They are bound up together. And just as an aside... This is a bit of a tangent. Don't disparage God's church. I'm not suggesting anyone in here is doing that. But how dangerous is it? How awful is it when someone perhaps leaves the church and then disparages that people of God? Who does that? The Antichrist does that. So when, when, when you think of your own self, when you think of your gathered selves together, how much is Christ in this place? Well, there's this doctrine called union with Christ. 
And we are so bound up in him that to separate Christ from his church is impossible. And here, to separate the idea that you, you, could, you could taunt the people of God without taunting God himself, it's impossible. So don't disparage the church. Notice a few more verses, verses 10 and verses 25. A common thread here, theologian named Dale Ralph Davis has pointed out, this is a key, these are key verses. There's a key verb here to understand this chapter, and that word is defy. So Goliath defies the armies of Israel. Notice verse 10. Goliath said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 25 says, the Israelites say of him, surely he's come up to defy Israel. So this is the, this is the thread that goes through. In the next few verses, David asks what will be done for him if he kills the giant, for the men in the army discuss this matter, and he does too. But David then says something noteworthy. He views the giant differently than the rest of the men in the army. Notice what David says, verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Goliath is part of the uncircumcision. He's not one of the covenant people of God. Who does he think he is coming up here to defy us, to defy our God? We are the circumcision. We are those chosen by God. What do we have to fear? Don't you want a little bit of that in you this morning? The world's pressing in, just lying to you, perhaps taunting you at times. Don't you want a little bit of that fire? He just calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. We have the Spirit of God. No one else has that. Why would we be timid? Why why would we back down? Why not have boldness? That's what David has. David's God is living. Notice that as well. And why is that the case? That's what, he, that's what he calls God. He's defying the living God. Remember the, the, the God of the Philistines, he was, a, he was a statue. He's not living, he's a rock. But more than that, David's faith is active. When he calls God a living God, he means he's living today. This isn't just the God of Abraham of old, no, he's, he's my God too. I remember the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He's a living God. We still have the covenant promises. The Messiah will come through our line. He's a living God. We still have favor. But remember, everyone else is a coward, and they've backed out. And it's, just, it's as if David is asking, like, have you guys forgotten And how often are we told in the scriptures to remember? How often are we told to not forget? If you read the book of Deuteronomy sometimes, that's the refrain. Do not forget or remember what the Lord has done for your people. You can look to the New Testament as well. How often we're told. The Lord's Supper as well, as I pointed out a minute ago. Remember this. Remember that I died for you. So this is one of the key components of Christianity is that we are a remembering people. One of the greatest things about David is that he remembers. He does not forget. Everyone else has forgotten. David then says he wants to go fight the Philistine. He's not going to just talk. He's going to go fight. And his brother tries to stop him. And then David appears before Saul, the king, And Saul also doubts David. Saul tells him, you are but a youth. And the giant has been a warrior from his youth. But David says to Saul, this verse 34, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it. And delivered the lamb from its mouth. There's all sorts of good illusions in there, isn't it? And then he says, I caught it by its beard and killed it. 
this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has, there's that word again, defied the armies of the living God. So perhaps you heard this story like I did growing up, that this story is the story of an underdog and a, and a, and a giant. Goliath is formidable, and in a certain sense, David is an unlikely man to beat him. He is the youngest of his brothers. He is not a soldier by training. But he does have experience fighting bears and lions, and that should count. (laughs) That should count for something. That seems to be at least part of what convinces Saul to let David go out on the battlefield. Because Saul does relent and says, okay, you go fight him. Shepherds do hard work. They are tough men. And most importantly, just a chapter before, in chapter 16, the prophet Samuel comes and anoints David. And the spirit of God comes upon him. And that is what makes all the difference. He has the spirit of God upon him, and if we have read our Bibles up until this point, we should expect the obvious. The man with the spirit of God is not the underdog. So think of yourself, believer. The world may think of you as an underdog, but are you the underdog if you have the spirit of God? We may suffer, we may get beaten, we may get put in prison, But it can be misleading, actually, to have this attitude. It's like, oh, woe is me, I'm the underdog. I don't think so. We, too, can stand up for the glory of God in our own day. And you'll have to think and pray about your own particular situations, about how that might bear out in your life. The shepherd boy is zealous for the glory of God. And much like Jesus, the good shepherd is zealous. Remember, even when facing death, Jesus glorified God. He said, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus is motive was to glorify God, even if that meant death. And if you have ever wondered what is going on in the mind of David as he walks out onto the battlefield, there's two camps somewhat far apart and David walks out. What's going on in his mind? This, this, this regular guy, this young guy facing a true warrior, a true giant. What is he thinking? We have the answer. Verse 47 tells us what's going on through his mind. David will fight, and he will defeat the giant, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's what's going on through his mind as he walks. That's David's aim. And a bit of application, is that your aim? It could be as you walk into work or walk into school, walk into a difficult situation or perhaps an easier situation. Is that your aim? I am here to glorify God. I am here to show people that the God I serve is the true and living God. That's David's aim. And these words are the reason David walked out onto the battlefield. This is what crosses his mind as he stands before the giant. He had an opportunity to honor God, and he did not pass it up. And later on in the scriptures, we read that God was well pleased with David and called him a man after mine own heart. And if you have the spirit of Christ, this is what that spirit is stirring up in you a desire to honor God among all nations. May that be so in our hearts. Third heading, last heading, the good shepherd defeats the Antichrist. The good shepherd defeats the Antichrist. 
So David is walking out to Goliath, and the two representatives meet, and the fate of their respective nations lay really in their hands. And David chose not to wear the armor that Saul offered, offered him. Saul's armor, it was, it was good quality, but it did not fit David well. It was too big, and David was not used to it, so he goes without. And a soldier, especially in a situation like this, should expect armor and the best weapons. He could have received any armor, sword, or weapon among any one of the Israelites, but he goes without. And this is not to say David's sling is a poor choice for a weapon. David owned one for good reason. The sling is deadly and was often used in his day. So again, to, to suggest that, that the sling is really an underdog sort of weapon is not quite right. We read elsewhere in the scriptures of men who had slings, and they were so accurate. But there is something about the sling that does seem unlikely. As David approaches... Notice that Goliath looks on him with disdain. Verse 42. Goliath has not been goaded into this task, by the way. He wants to fight. Goliath is, he's proud. Goliath is, is he's puffed up. He's full of hatred. He's not just big, he's hateful. He looks on David with disdain. He genuinely hates him. And then Goliath, Goliath shows that he's offended too. He says to David, am I a dog? Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. There's something truly like villainous about this. So cursed David by his gods. I mentioned this earlier. This, this, this is central to the text. Goliath invokes the name of his gods that David may be cursed. So again, this is a real battle. However, more than that, this is a spiritual battle. It's the Philistine God versus the God of Israel. David responds, and this is the next paragraph. This is the heart, I think, of the whole narrative. You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. We sang about it earlier. David now invokes the name of his God. Goliath has invoked the name of his God. And Goliath, if you think about it this way, armies have flags. Goliath is under a banner. He's under a flag, if you will. And his flag is going to say Dagon. His flag is going to say the God of the Philistines. And David's flag is going to say Yahweh, the God of Israel. Verse 48. Here's the battle. So it was, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it. I remember my dad acting this out when I was a kid. Perhaps some of you have done that for your children. So David prevailed. I missed a verse. Then David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and he slung it, struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So a couple of notes here. Perhaps you've seen the illusion. Goliath, same language. He falls face down before David, just like Dagon before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The God of the Philistines is dead. 
the leader of the army of the Philistines is dead. Do you see that? That's, this is the fire that I want in my life. Where, where you see the victory is sure. It's, it's happening twofold in 1 Samuel. It's, it's, it's not a small illusion, it's an obvious illusion that the God of Israel is greater than all other gods because he's the only God. He's the only living God. So I'm a school teacher. One of the privileges I have being a school teacher is I get acquainted with some of the lingo teenagers um, use nowadays, bussin' and no cap and all that kind of stuff. And my favorite is extra. I don't know if you guys have heard this one, but they'll say, say, oh, that's extra. And it basically means like over the top, like you're exaggerating, like that's, that's too much. Calm it down a little bit, that's extra. So we'll be in class and somebody will be a little too dramatic, saying something or complaining, and one of the other students will go, extra. I really like it, and it's appropriate sometimes. So extra. Now, I, wanna, I mention that because some people, some unbelievers, are going to approach this text, and they're going to read some of the details here, and they're going to say, that's extra. That's too much. David killed him. Did he really have to cut off his head? Did he ha- they're going to say to me, that's too much. Because not only did David cut off his head, he holds it up. And he shows the Philistines. And he shows the Israelites. Is that extra? No. He had to cut off the head. Because that's Genesis 3.15. The serpent's head will be removed from the serpent. For David is a type of Christ, and Goliath is an antichrist. This is the way the story ends. We read about it in Genesis. We read about it in Revelation. From beginning to end, this is the story of the Bible. So yes, he had to take the head. And he has to hold it up because he's showing the people of God, we are the people of God. In the same way, Goliath falls down on his face, so did Dagon. Both of them have their heads crushed. This is a point Alistair Roberts makes, a number of other theologians do as well. And this is ultimately a picture, a foretaste of what Jesus ultimately does. Christ comes many generations after David, and he defeats Satan once and for all. He crushed the head of the serpent. He unfurled Satan's evil plots, Jesus did. But how? How did Jesus defeat Satan? There's no place in the New Testament where Jesus literally steps on snakes. So how did he do it? He broke Satan's stronghold by going to the cross. For that's the only way the curse is undone. And Jesus goes to the cross, despite your sin, despite my sin, despite the sins of all of his people, he goes to the cross and he bears their punishment on their behalf. And only in this way, by his righteous blood, can we be redeemed. That's how he crushes the head of Satan. It's the gospel. Before moving on to some further application, take note that the chapter actually continues on for another several verses. I want to make mention of this. Consider especially that David takes the head of Goliath all the way to Jerusalem. This is verse 54. Why does he take the head all the way to Jerusalem? As Richard Phillips has noted, Jerusalem was not in Israel's possession yet. Remember, Israel is conquering parts of the promised land. They have, they've had Jerusalem at certain points, and now they don't. Jerusalem is not in Israel's possession. 
but David takes the head all the way to Jerusalem. Why does he do it? Well, Israel was promised that Jerusalem would be theirs. Jerusalem is a part of the promised land. So David, in light of the promise, goes to Jerusalem with Goliath's head. And that was the only point of the trip. There's no side plot. He just takes the head and rides off to Jerusalem. And we don't know exactly how this went down, but we can imagine, I think, arriving at the city gates of Jerusalem, because remember, Jerusalem is occupied by the enemies of God at this point. Perhaps arriving at the city gates, David appears. He's not there to fight, but he is there to show the head. And I can imagine him arriving at Jerusalem, and he just stands outside the city gates, and he holds up the great dragon's head. And he just shows them. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is true. And it will come to pass. And David may not know this yet, but you and I do know it, that on the outskirts of Jerusalem, one day, Jesus Christ would die. And that the Antichrist, Satan, his head would be crushed then and there. So why does he go? It's like a foretaste. He's showing what will happen. So a bit of application. Just a few pieces of application. The first application is this. I <clears throat> Be like David. Be like David. Simple application. This is what many of us grew up hearing, uh, but it's a good point. There's actually been some, some pushback to this by some prominent evangelicals. There's one prominent, prominent evangelical pastor that you, you may have heard. He said, you're not David. You're not David. Well, I get that. You're not David. You're, you, you know. On the other hand, we should strive to be like David in certain respects. We should strive to be like Christ in certain respects, of course. So David, overall, though he was sinful, he, he was a man after God's own heart. He did many wonderful things for the glory of God. He was a warrior, he's a king, a shepherd, but also a shepherd in the sense that he shepherded other people. He sought their welfare. So three ways we can be like David. One is this, I speak first, I'll address children, teenagers, young folks in here. This first one is for you. The first application is this. Do not let anyone despise you for your youth. Three times in this chapter, David was told, don't go do it. Don't go fight. In fact, one time by Saul, he was told, you're just a youth. You can't go fight. But David was trusting in the promises of God. And despite his youth, he went and he served the Lord, even if that meant going outside what other people thought was responsible for his age. Secondly, trust the Lord of the battle to fight for you. David himself knew that God would grant the victory. So it wasn't his sling, it wasn't his shepherd's staff. David went up to the giant in the name of the living God. That's the key thing. He knew that God would fight for him. And many people forget this. Thirdly, concern yourself with the glory of God above all. If we have this sort of concern, it, it produces all sorts of wonderful effects in us. If you are striving to, to glorify God in all you do, it, things just seem, we, we can't count the ways that it will bear good fruit for you in your life, but, but also in the lives of those around you. So David's zeal for God, it actually energized him. It's the sort of thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. The Philistine was cursing David by his gods, and that lit a fire in David. Now, when, when people are, are disparaging the church, or they're taunting you, or, or they're saying what you believe is not true, that can make us sort of shrivel up sometimes. And, that can, and you can just take a beating. That happens. On the other hand, part of the reason I like to preach on this is because 
this is one of those stories that lights a fire, that energizes us, and says that our faith is a triumphant one. And one last point of application. I say this to all who hear, but who may not yet believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. Here's the application. Submit yourself to the greater David. David was fallible like you and I. He sinned in egregious ways. And though he was great, he still needed one to pay the penalty that he deserved. So this day, repent of your sins. Agree with God that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. For Jesus, like David, he was born in Bethlehem. Like David, he is a shepherd of God's people. Like David... Jesus is a king and a man who sought the glory of the Father. But Jesus is better than David, isn't he? He never sinned. He obeyed the law where David did not. And while David crushed the head of a Philistine giant, Christ crushed the skull of the prince of the power of the air, ending the power of death that the Antichrist holds over humanity's heads. So because of Christ... One day there will be no more war, for he was torn, beaten, pierced, and placed upon a cross that all who look on him might be saved. So if you need to get saved this morning, trust him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, thank you for this text. I pray for those who are hurting this morning who need energy from the gospel this morning, that you grant it to them. I pray for those who are weak in their faith, that you will strengthen their faith this morning. I pray for those who do not yet know Christ. Lord, bring them to see the Bible is true. This passage proves it. And I pray that they will believe it and get relief that only the gospel can bring. We pray in Christ's name, amen.